0: i'm roger kimball the editor and publisher of your favorite cultural monthly and like nanki poo in the mikado it gives me modified rapture to be speaking to you today from the once mighty city of new york why only modified rapture well this was meant to have been an in-person event and i was looking forward to mingling among you improving beverage in hand introducing you to my friend Conrad Black, who would then enlighten us about the likely fate of the United States of America. Alas, it was not to be. Like Moses at the threshold of the promised land, Conrad was denied entry to the United States. Why? We are not quite sure. Probably it had something to do with the COVID protocols, our latest gift from the Chinese government. Anyway, Conrad couldn't come. He was denied entry at the border, and so here we are. The Wonders of Modern Technology have allowed us to bring you Conrad's talk, nevertheless. He was filmed just a couple of days ago in Toronto, and here I am in New York. The Wonders of Technology, again, will meld these two two talks together into a seamless whole. We can't get rid of COVID yet through technology, nor can we train our masters in Washington, but we can do this at least. Let me say just a few words about Conrad Black, Lord Black of Cross Harbor. Many of you probably know him as an eminent biographer and historian. He's written biographies of FDR and Richard Nixon and Donald Trump, many historical works. Most recently, I think, a strategic history of the United States called The Flight of the Eagle, he is also a prodigious occasional journalist, writing for such important outlets as American Greatness, The Epic Times, The Wall Street Journal, and of course, for The New Criterion. I'm sure you've seen his work in our pages many times. And I'm happy to say that this year he is also one of our visiting critics. So we're getting a steady diet of Conrad, though from afar. Conrad was also, of course, the proprietor of the London Telegraph, the Spectator, the Jerusalem Post, and many other newspapers. He is someone who of course you will have heard of many times as well as read in our pages. So although Conrad is not here with us in person, he's here with us in spirit, and his talk about the possible decline of the United States, we've had a very trying several months here in this country. Is it permanent? Is it irreversible? Conrad will tell us. I'm so happy that we are able to bring you this program, at least if not in person, then in spirit to our many friends and supporters of the Circle Group for the new criterion. Thank you. I hope you enjoy Conrad's talk.
1: The answer to the question that Roger Kimball gave me for reply is that no, the United States is not an irreversible decline at all. It is at a plateau which should be sustainable for a long time, and it has had an untimely and even freakish confluence of unfortunate circumstances. But the United States is today no less important a country in the world than it was a year ago or 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. It was only 30 years ago that it led the West to the greatest and most bloodless strategic victory in the history of the nation state, in the disintegration of its only rival as a superpower in the world. This disintegration occurred as a result of the inspired policy of containment followed by ten consecutive presidents of both parties, and no shot in anger was ever exchanged between the United States and the Soviet Union. Irreversible decline is what gradually drove down Spain and Turkey and the Habsburg Empire from the late 16th century into the 20th century. One often hears a good deal of glib talk comparing the United States to the late Roman Empire. This is not informed opinion. There were, depending upon how you count them, 50 Roman emperors from Augustus to Romulus Augustulus from 27 BC to 453 AD, and 38 of the 50 died violently. After Constantine died in 337, Rome was ever more frequently and heavily dependent upon mercenaries, frontier barbarians of questionable loyalty, and the interventions of religious leaders. Later, Roman government was thoroughly debased and was mainly conducted by warlords who had no real fealty to Rome at all. And even after 700 years of preeminent influence in Western Europe, when the empire was more or less competently directed from Rome, and after a century of increasing chaos, after it collapsed and was overwhelmed by barbarian masses, The Eastern Roman Empire soldiered on for nearly another thousand years. It took until extremities of institutional decrepitude, venality and fragmentation were completely out of control before Rome could clearly be described as being in irreversible decline. Obviously this has no parallel with the present United States. I speak as one who is so steeped in Oswald Spengler's claim of the coming decline of the West that after the last U.S. presidential election, I actually had a dream in which there appeared a modified version of the song from Kiss Me Kate in which we are admonished to brush up your Shakespeare, start quoting him now, brush up your Shakespeare and the ladies will all kowtow. In my subconscious version, Spengler replaced Shakespeare, and if we brushed him up, we would all better kowtow to the Chinese. The thought that the inexorable decline had begun certainly seemed plausible, but on considering it carefully and despite the inauspicious beginning of the present administration, I do not think that any such conclusion is justified. The United States is fundamentally a much more powerful country than China, which has scanty resources, an aging and over-large and culturally unhomogeneous population, riven by corruption, 40% a command economy, and with no civilian institutions that are respected in or outside the country. Several hundred million Chinese still live as their ancestors did 2,000 years ago. China is the greatest economic development story in history and this is the first time a formerly great power ceased to be one and has, after a lapse of 500 years, regained that status. The Chinese challenge has only assumed the proportions it has because of the sudden fragmentation of the normal political consensus on national security matters in the United States. This is a temporary phenomenon that has been aggravated by long pent-up racial dissension that has erupted in what must be its final demonstrative stage. Militant African Americans are making demands and inflicting destruction on a scale that would have been more appropriate and less surprising 60 years ago. These are now sociopathic attitudes but they are unrepresentative, though not completely inexplicable. Annoying and worrisome though they are, these events are not entirely negative, and I will return to that point. The United States had not really thought in terms of being a great power in the world at all until the early years of the 20th century when President Theodore Roosevelt expanded the Navy and sent it around the world, built the Panama Canal and mediated peace in the Russo-Japanese War. Isolationism returned and was entrenched in neutrality by President Wilson in World War I until the German Emperor forced the United States into the war by attacking and sinking its merchant vessels on the high seas. This produced the second foray of the U.S. into international affairs When President Wilson electrified the world in his war message to the Congress on April 2, 1917, he said, The world must be made safe for democracy. It is a fearful thing to lead this most peaceful people into the most terrible and disastrous of all wars. Yet the right is more precious than peace, and to such a task we can dedicate our lives and our fortunes, everything that we are and everything that we have, with the pride of those who know the date has come when America is privileged to spend her blood and her might for the principles that gave her birth and happiness and the peace which she has treasured. God helping her, she could do no other. The German provocation of the United States to enter World War I was equaled only by the Japanese and German initiation of war against the United States in World War II, and by Stalin's provocation of the Cold War as the greatest strategic mistakes of any countries of the 20th century. The common failing of all of them was the underestimation of the power of the United States, and all these adversaries were laid low as a result of it. From Wilson's time comes the American political requirement for a moral justification for the use of force, which has sometimes created national divisions, as during the Vietnam War, that can be mistaken for decline. All knew that between these events, from 1917 to 1946 or 7, And despite the interruption of the Great Depression, the central fact of world affairs was the absolute and comparative and unprecedentedly swift rise of the power and influence of the United States in the world. But even then, there were occasional claims that America was entering into a period of decline, and not just from leading rival alternate regimes. Dr. Joseph Goebbels in the 30s regularly proclaimed the superiority of Nazi society and the German economy over America's. And in 1963, Soviet leader Khrushchev famously said, we will bury you. There was no shortage of local pessimists who agreed with them. It is a good thing not to underestimate one's rival, and the American leadership did not underestimate the menace presented to it by the Third Reich, the Soviet Union, and now China, though these three threats are easily distinguishable and have been gradually less deadly and uncivilized. The United States had the good fortune to have a leader during the Nazi threat who knew Germany intimately. FDR knew Germany and other Western European countries well and spoke German and French fluently. As president, he always spoke German to visiting German speakers, even bilingual ones, including Albert Einstein, Thomas Mann, and Hitler's finance minister, Hjalmar Horace Greeley Schacht. President Roosevelt saw, as soon as Mr. Churchill did, that it would be impossible to cooperate or probably even coexist with Hitler. After the fall of France in 1940, as he broke a tradition as old as the Republic in seeking a third term, President Roosevelt saw that if Germany were able to absorb Polish, Czech, Scandinavian, Dutch, Belgian, and French populations whose territory it had occupied, and to assimilate those populations over a couple of generations— Greater Germany would have a larger population than the United States, and its industrial capacities would be approximately as great. In those circumstances, this Greater Germany's preeminence in Europe, and if its existing alliances with Japan and the Soviet Union continued, Germany's leadership of the entire Eurasian landmass would prove a deadly threat and rivalry to America's just emerging preeminence in the world. Eurasia is a substantially greater strategic base than the Americas if it could be pulled together under a unified government or coalition of two or three like-minded and antagonistic powers. The United States and the world were fortunate that the statesmanship and war leadership of Roosevelt and Churchill transformed the desperate summer of 1940 when Germany, Italy, Japan, and France were all in the hands of dictatorial regimes hostile to the Anglo-Americans, to the triumph of the summer of 1945, when all of those countries, except a small piece of Germany, were in the hands of Anglo-Americans discovering or reverting to democratic rule and well-launched towards becoming flourishing allies of the Anglo-Americans. These four powers were four of the present G7 countries and the United States, United Kingdom and Canada are the others. And in this great transition, in subduing the principal enemy, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union had endured over 90% of the casualties and 95% of the physical damage as between the United States, Soviet Union and the British Empire. This was the supreme triumph of Roosevelt and Churchill. Roosevelt, as a member of the Wilson administration, had believed in the concept of the League of Nations, not as a panacea to the world's ills, but as a gentle introduction of the United States to fuller participation in the international community. He saw that if the United States were not involved in any way with the security of Western Europe and the Far East, Those regions would, every generation, be in danger of being taken over by regimes hostile to democracy and to America, and that the whole fate of Western civilization could be in the balance every generation. His purpose in being a champion of the United Nations was to provide cover for what would inevitably be overwhelming U.S. influence in the post-war world. Great power would be delegated by the world to the permanent members of the Security Council, and these would be the United States and four other countries heavily indebted to the United States, the United Kingdom, France, China, and the Soviet Union. American influence would be disguised somewhat through the Security Council and further through the collegiality of the General Assembly. And as he lured the United States out of the cocoon of isolationism, Roosevelt also expected that the existence of the United Nations would at least, for a time, persuade the American public that the world was a less dangerous place than the tens of millions of people who had fled to America from the war, bigotry, oppression, and class rigidities of the old world, and the descendants of those fugitives. Thought it to be. The Soviet Union was not as belligerent as the Nazis, but was potentially a more powerful country than Germany, and Communism, since it professed universality, not racial superiority, and instead of inegalitarianism, a spurious form of economic brotherhood, had much greater international appeal than Nazism. Especially as the colonial era was ending, the dangers of the previously colonized populations being seduced by the communist masquerade were considerable. However, Roosevelt's strategic team that was inherited by President Truman, Generals George Marshall, Dwight Eisenhower, and Douglas MacArthur, and foreign policy specialists Dean Acheson, George Kennan, Charles Boland, and others, devised and executed the strategy of containment. With the Soviet Union spending eight to ten times on its military as a percentage of GDP than the United States did, the timely and theatrical production by President Reagan of his Strategic Defense Initiative, the non-nuclear space-based anti-missile defense program, presented the possibility of the entire Soviet military effort being insufficient to maintain deterrence. Astonishingly, almost miraculously, the entire regime, international communism, and the Soviet Union itself crumbled. The mortal threat to the West fell like a souffle. You will recall that for a time in the late 80s and early 90s, Japan appeared to be an economic rival to the United States. And in a new world where peace would be undisturbed, at least between the major powers, It was instantly thought to be an advantage that Japan, in consequence of its surrender and the subsequent government of the country by General MacArthur, had forsworn a serious military capacity, that the avoidance of this burden would facilitate its supposedly irresistible encroachments upon American manufacturing and finance superiority. You will also recall that that bubble burst quickly, and for internal Japanese reasons. The main Russian threat and Japan's style of rivalry were seen off nearly 30 years ago, leaving the United States absolutely alone at the summit of the world. It is a little early to think in terms of such a country, so quickly plunging into a nosedive. There is no reason whatever to imagine that if the United States were severely provoked and threatened again, that its response would be any less vigorous than on previous such occasions. In 1942, President Roosevelt spoke for the nation when he said, when the very life of our country is in mortal danger, to serve in the armed forces of the United States is not a sacrifice, it is a privilege. Should such circumstances recur, I put it to you that the response would be similar. China is the principal cause of the present consternation. It is not only the first country to recycle itself as a great power. It has repeated this cycle several times, but its limitations have already been summarized. Overpopulated, aging, resource poor, chronic lack of transparency, rampant corruption and institutions that command no respect and are not believable. Not one word or figure published by the regime in Beijing can be believed. Americans are right to lament the deterioration of ethics in their public life and to some degree the role of money in American political life. But the People's Republic of China is an atrophied totalitarian system Riven by Oriental factionalism and conspiracism, the great and the good are apt to disappear without notice, expunged as in Stalinist times. China has had little relevant recent experience of how to behave like a great power. Its generally overbearing and simplistic concepts of how to augment its influence in the world, and its strategies for pouring money into developing countries will ultimately lead to those investments being nationalized by their hosts. The idea that China will gain any great long-range influence from profusely investing in Africa, much less Afghanistan, is nonsense. They were so heavy-handed in their patronization of the colonels in Myanmar, they were effectively expelled. This gives an indication of the finesse of Chinese diplomacy. Vietnam, despite what it owes China and the success of Ho Chi Minh, has been thoroughly alienated. The region has seen the Chinese try to impose an economic boycott on Australia because that country sought a serious inquiry into the role of the Wuhan Institute of Virology in the escape of the coronavirus. None of the many countries who use the South China Sea are prepared to have it designated as Chinese territorial waters. China is evidently departing its previous practice throughout its history of having minimal interest in foreign countries other than its immediate neighbors. Historically it has exacted the tribute which it has felt to be due to the dominant power at the center of a group of lesser nations. But the countries on China's borders now are not weak countries. And even the current U.S. administration is rallying to the desirability of a modified containment strategy to encourage China's neighbors to avoid being subsumed into a Chinese-dominated orbit. I am almost as far as it is possible to go from being an apologist for the Biden administration. But if it were possible, To be confident that, shambles though it was, the departure from Afghanistan would be followed by severance of military aid to Pakistan, whose duplicity with America's local enemies has been outstanding in its insolence, and a retrenchment to a more defensible perimeter for the containment of China, that would be a cause for reassurance rather than anxiety. If China wants to put its famous belt and road through Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran, the United States and its allies, when they have finished reinvigorating their faith in the alliance with Washington, will be able to draw a firm line as advantageous to the West as was the Cold War division of Europe. This NATO of the East, but with a substantial economic component as well, perhaps based on the reconfigured pan-Pacific trade partnership would be based on the solidarity of the US, Japan, Australia, South Korea, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore, New Zealand, India, and in economic terms only unless China really forced the issue, Taiwan. If the posture of such an association was clearly defensive and chiefly motivated by a desire for increased prosperity in the region while resisting Chinese aggrandizement such as in the South China Sea, and if it received consistent and substantial support from the United States, it would succeed. China would have no possible way of surpassing or dangerously threatening the economic or military strength or comparative democratic and civil rights credentials of such a formidable group of countries. The principal danger that could be posed by China, and practically the only danger that could be posed by Russia, would occur if Russia were so sharply faced down by the West that it rented important parts of Siberia to China for exploitation of its resources by surplus Chinese. If China were to move 50 million people into the almost untouched Siberian treasure house of vast resources in exchange for a royalty paid to the Kremlin, that collaboration would be dangerous to the United States and that is why President Trump and others who did not wish to drive Russia into the arms of China were correct. It should be possible to outbid China for Russia's goodwill without recreating much of the USSR. And in a broader sense, we certainly want Russia in the Western world. While the Cold War was in progress, the eastern edge of the Western world was only 100 miles beyond the Rhine at the East German border. It has now advanced into Eastern Ukraine and we wish to embrace Russia as the Western European powers did from the time of Peter the Great to the Bolshevik Revolution. Russia is truculent and particularly testy after its decisive defeat in the Cold War. It should be possible to trace a path between appeasement of Russian revanchism and such a cold repulse that the Kremlin consents to live as a rentier of China. It is not clear that the Biden State Department or National Security Council think in such realistic terms of the American national interest but all the elements are at hand to assure a successful response to the Chinese challenge, especially as the Chinese are not nearly as ambitious or reckless as the Nazis, and are much more economically successful and amenable to coexistence than were most of the pre-Gorbachev leaders of the Soviet Union. The various strategic pieces are ready to be assembled by the United States and its collaborators, in a manner that retains the paramount influence of the United States in the affairs of the world. Concerns about irreversible decline naturally arise after frightful episodes of blunderbuss foreign policy, such as in the abandonment of Afghanistan and on the southern border. But whatever the national security policy shortcomings of the present administration, it will become more effective or eventually will be replaced. All that would really incite such fears of imminent American decline as I have been asked to address would be if the American people itself were losing its pride in and ambition to remain the greatest national force and influence in the world. There is no evidence that anything like this has happened. Not to oversimplify well-known events. I suggest the most disconcerting upheavals in American social and political life in the last several years are already settling down. And as I said at the beginning of these remarks, they do contain a couple of positive elements. No country has ever made such prodigious and largely successful efforts to raise a subjugated racial minority of the population to genuine equality and to atone for what Mr. Lincoln called the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil, followed by a century of the pale of segregation. Magnificent though the progress and reconciliation of the Caucasian and African Americans has been, it is not in the abstract surprising that there is some whiplash of continued and often even exaggerated resentment. Slavery was abominable. But it was at one time the almost universal practice of nations, including the nations of Africa. America's performance as a slave-holding country was not markedly worse than that of other countries, and its record uh, as in emancipation, desegregation, and promotion of racial equality has been exceptionally determined. At no point has the recent African-American ambition for segregation come close to prevailing in the general opinion of that community over the heritage of Martin Luther King and others seeking integration and equality. It is inconceivable that the majority would join the extremist African-American cause and it is unlikely that self-hating liberal white indulgence will continue to be as kindly disposed to the provocation of extremists as they were last summer. As all will recall, billions of dollars of damage from vandalism, theft, and arson that had nothing to do with the horrifying death of George Floyd were patiently described as peaceful protests. And the assault upon the effigies of great leaders and supporters of the African-American interest of the past, including Lincoln, General Grant, and even Frederick Douglass, was inexplicably tolerated by many who should have known better. The United States was at a unique political crossroads when the only person ever elected president who had never sought or served in any public office nor held a high military command, elected or unelected positions, astounded the country by being elected president on a campaign to reverse bipartisan agreed policy and to reorient or dismiss almost the entire community of senior government personnel. Despite President Trump's undoubted success in many policy areas, his stylistic infelicities, and the threat that he posed to the bipartisan establishment that had operated the government for decades, briefly and unprecedentedly created against him a coalition of disgruntled traditionalist Republicans and outraged displaced Democrats who formed an alliance against the incumbent president such as the country has never seen. The Democratic Party became an incongruous coalition of New Deal, Great Society, New Democrat traditionalists, anti-Trump Republicans, almost all the academy and the national political media, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, and the African American extremists. It was all covered in nostalgia, almost recreating an atmosphere of Norman and Thomas socialism, personified by Senator Bernie Sanders and young legislators like a Congresswoman Ocasio Cortez, and it all somewhat recalled Herbert Marcuse, the venerable twentieth century Marxist and the energetic youngsters of the holy barbarians at Berkeley, and similar groups across the country in the 1960s and 1970s. Unfortunately, there was also a violent accompanying riffraff of hooligans, Antifa and the militant wing of Black Lives Matter in particular. Nothing as absurd and churlish as contemporary wokeness can long escape the thermidorian instincts of American society and even of its academics. It is unrigorous and malignant faddishness, without legs, as they say in Hollywood, which is inevitably one of the most bilious sources of the woke nonsense. The shortcomings of the present administration will hasten the disintegration of this discordant coalition, which only arose to be the evocator and the voice of Trump hate, what is unprecedented is this tremendous wave of American self-loathing. It is aberrant, unjustified, and must be seen as the brief palliative to what came to be seen by many Americans as a prolonged American taste for self-flattering historical myth-making. All countries engage in that, and there is a small quantity of truth in that reproach. It is one of the great ironies of modern times that the world chiefly owes the relative success of democratic government and free market economics to the influence and energy and leadership of the United States. But the United States is not now one of the world's best-functioning democracies. The federal criminal justice system is a conveyor belt to the bloated prison system. Every informed person knows the plea bargaining system enables prosecutors to extort and suborn perjury from cooperating witnesses who themselves receive an assurance of immunity to prosecution for perjury. This chiefly explains why 98% of American federal criminal trials produce convictions and 95% of those without trials. The United States has 6 to 12 times as many incarcerated people per capita as the most comparable countries, the large prosperous democracies, Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, and the United Kingdom. This has played some role in the recent unreasonable hostility to police and to some prosecutors. American exceptionalism today is chiefly a matter of scale. Many other countries have better judicial systems and less compromising use of money in politics, and many are equally meritocratic. This is not any denigration of the genius of the founders of this country, of the success of the U.S. Constitution, and of the completely unique rise of the Americans from a few million settlers and slaves in two long lifetimes too, as Mr. Churchill said in his parliamentary eulogy of President Roosevelt, that, and I quote him, he had raised the strength, might, and glory of the great republic to a height never attained by any nation in history, end quote, which included at the end of World War II an atomic monopoly and half the economic Product of the entire war-ravaged world. That American eminence continues. Of the country's beginnings, of course the British botched the stamp tax because it couldn't be collected. But Britain had tripled its national debt in the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian Wars, as they're known in the United States, largely to expel the French from Canada at the insistent requests of the Americans, especially Benjamin Franklin, who represented most of them in London. And as the Americans were the wealthiest British citizens, there was an argument that they should pay the tax the British were already paying to rid the Americans of the French threat in Quebec, which didn't bother the British but greatly perplexed the Americans. They should have imposed the tax before they defeated the French, when there would have been little resistance to it rather than when the tax was retroactively imposed to pay for what had already been achieved. In its early days, as the United States did not have a language and civilization of its own, unlike England, France, Holland, Spain, and other countries, and its lore was in its prospects and not its past, America's propagandists, chiefly Jefferson and Thomas Paine, fabricated the theory that it was a new order of the ages, and the dawn of human liberty. Jefferson was a slaveholder. This was the first American recourse to what Donald Trump calls constructive hyperbole. In fact, it had no more liberty than it had had before the Revolution, only its own government. And Americans had no greater liberties than the British, Swiss, Dutch, or most Scandinavians. But they had the genius of the spectacle and the world was riveted by the American experiment and has not ceased to be so. I do not for a moment diminish American traditions. It is a magnificent country with a tremendous level of achievement in almost every field. Countries of such fermentation and vital energy are not in decline. It is rather at a point of renewal made even more intense than it would normally be by the tumult of the Trump and Biden elections and, in very different ways, the uniqueness of their administrations in these perilous times. Donald Trump did the nation a service in recognizing the level of public discontent and the drift away from an incentive economy and into indecisive foreign policy. He achieved a great deal, especially in eliminating unemployment, and generating greater percentage economic growth among the lowest 20% of income earners than the highest 10%. But his war on the political establishment made him vulnerable, and his vulnerabilities were compounded by his bombast and tactical errors at times. But his enemies strained the system by defaming him as an agent of a foreign power, by abusing the impeachment process, By rendering the 2020 election result questionable by their handling of over 40 million mailed, dropped, or harvested ballots, most of which could not be verified. And finally, by launching a war of extermination against anyone who questioned the result of the election. The result is questionable, but it is over, and the administration that has been installed has not so far been competent. If it doesn't raise its game, either Trump or a candidate supported by him will be elected in 2024. But the crisis of society is passing, even if public policy problems are not. Trump is mellowing. The effort to use the rickety platform of the democratic left to transform the United States into a torpid socialist country will fail. Adam Smith famously said, there is a great deal of ruin in a country. And there is a great deal of general failure before a great nation comes into inexorable decline. This is no time for complacency, but no such decline is in process. Americans are still highly motivated and very patriotic. American political institutions, though strained and tainted at times, still function. The national political media are starting to retrieve a modicum of professionalism. And China has no answer to the full force of American creativity, spontaneity, and focused national determination. Thank you very much.